Morning, brothers and sisters of Hickory Bible Church. You could turn to Romans 6, and uh, we will bring a little mini-series to a close today on our union with Christ, and in particular, how that affects our growth in Christ, how in our justification, Romans 4 and 5 make really clear that God declares us righteous in the gospel, that it is the righteousness of Christ that we trust in. It is not the work of our hands as we just sang. Uh, We could not fulfill the law's demands. We needed a perfect substitute, and that was Jesus Christ. And so in the gospel of God, Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and he declares us righteous, and that's called justification. What we've been looking at in Romans 6 is how he actually makes us righteous. And it is not enough just to say, I believe that I'm declared righteous, and, and righteous I am that way. But that God goes even further, and we call that the sanctification of a believer, where he is separating us from our sin, as in not to penalty anymore. That was declared, done, over with, guilty, no longer. We are not condemned in Christ, Romans 8.1. So the guilt of our sin, the penalty of it is removed And its power is broken over us. It no longer dominates our lives. And that's what begins at justification and continues in our sanctification. He actually separates us from our sin and our old sinful ways by choice because he has broken sin's power and penalty over us by nature. And so we can think of ourselves being separated further and further from sin. But that's just looking backwards. What we're looking to as believers is what? being more and more made like Christ. And that's our growth in him, our sanctification. And that's what we've been seeing in Romans 6, how God does that. We saw in Romans 6, 1 to 14, that he does that by giving us a new life. We're dead to our old sin nature, living in Adam, and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 11 said that last week. And that understanding, us knowing that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus, is what promotes us to grow more like Christ and actually empowers us. And we saw last week, we could even go on offering our bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to God, if you want to call it that, uh, and not letting sin reign in our bodies, but we let the reign of Christ help us to grow more like him. And we're going to elaborate on that today because apparently in Paul writing this out, you know, 2000 years ago, and describing our sanctification and how we grow, uh, answering that first question in Romans 6.1, hey, if the gospel of grace is so good and it brings glory to God for God to show us grace, can we sin more because that would show more glory to God? And he answered that, no, you have a new life. But yet there was still a question that remained as he talked about in verse 14 last week. We're not under law, but under grace. So if we're not under law, do we not have to obey the law? I mean... If you preach the gospel rightly, many a preacher will say, in the fullness of the grace of God in Christ, it produces a question in a person. If the law doesn't matter because Christ fulfilled it on my behalf, do I still have to obey it? And that's the question asked in verse 15 that we're going to look at today. If we're under grace and not the law, what's the point of obeying it? Or ask another way, what's there to lose if I don't obey as a Christian? What's really at stake after we come to salvation? So follow with me as Paul answers part two of a question that started in Romans 6.1. Hey, if grace is so good, should we go on sinning? He says, no, 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 you have a new life. And then the answer to the question of, are we under the law or under grace? And if we're under grace, can we still sin? He would say, no, you have a new master. It's not just that you have a new life. 
in Christ. You have a new Lord in Christ. And the only way you have that new life in Christ is that you have a new Lord. The only way that your life gets totally redefined is that you have a redeemer. To have a new mission is to have a new master. To live in the new kingdom that God wants you to live in, you have to have a new king. And so this is the question put together in Romans 6.15 that lingers back to the beginning of chapter 6. So as I've said before, understanding how we grow as Christians is the whole of chapter 6, and it's really broken into two parts. And so far we've covered part 1, we have a new life in Christ in union with him. And then part two today, we have a new Lord. We have a new master. So follow along as I'll read from verses 15 to 23. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as the question is asked in Romans 6 about what does it mean to really be free from sin, free from the law, free from the penalty of sin, it brings to mind questions of freedom throughout the ages. Philosophers have tried to answer that question, particularly in the age of enlightenment coming out of the dark ages where all things pointed back to Rome. It was the authority of the Catholic Church. It was the authority of the Pope. And if you had any problem with that, you had to submit to what they said. And then in the Age of Enlightenment, philosophers started to ask the question, what is true freedom? You know, we can think for ourselves. We can, we can find out truth without having to to rely upon authorities that we have trusted in for the ages. And so thinkers like Voltaire in the 1700s said this, it is difficult to free a fool from the chains he reveres. I mean, he had the idea of freedom in his mind that you can be bound by chains to something that inwardly holds you to the thing that could be destroying you. Or his contemporary Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Genevan uh, philosopher said, man is born free but everywhere is in chains. He didn't take the view that we're in chains to something coming from within. He took the opposite approach, and he said it's, it's society that puts chains on us. And by God's common grace, though neither of these men would uh, be followers of Christ, they were each half right. There is something that chains us from within, and there can be things that chain us from without. 
Neither had the whole truth. Because in their own speculative philosophy of trying to figure their way out to freedom, what does it look not to not be bound to chains? Voltaire was right in saying there is something inward that even if a person wants to break free, he can't. But see, even in a statement, he said it's difficult to free a fool from the chains. So what did he think the answer was going to be in the Enlightenment? More wisdom. You just need to be enlightened. And if you could follow the path to enlightenment, you could be free from your inner chains. Whereas Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, well, the gospel wasn't only for the wise. It was for the wise and the foolish. And God brought the gospel to shame the things of the wise. That being a person bound in chains to some inner desire or will that destroys you isn't exclusive property of foolish people. The wise can be just as bound to their own lusts and desires. So that's where he was wrong. And then on the other hand, someone like Rousseau who says, well, the problem is outside of you. And sometimes it is. You have corrupt people that want power and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you can blame society to some degree on the chains it may bind you with. But when you put them together, they still fall short of the truth of the word of God, which is we are bound to chains because we are born sinners. Sinners by nature and then sinners by choice. And far above the speculative philosophy of the ages, sorry, freshman philosophy majors who are about to take a class this semester, you won't find it in all the books you're going to read over the next semester on philosophy and man and how to become enlightened. The word of God paints our picture of freedom or lack thereof very clearly for us. 2 Peter 2.19 For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. You have to look no further than the, the lusts and desires and the way a person lives their life to say, that's what's driving that person. By what they are enslaved, by what they are driven by or overcome by is what they are enslaved. But there's only one solution to get out of that enslavement. John 8, 31, Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I mean, it's a shame that hundreds of years of philosophy could be ended in the question of what is true freedom if men and women's minds could just be turned to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the word of God, where it's painted very clearly. All of our wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, is found in Christ. All of our righteousness is found in Christ. All of our redemption is found in Christ. That is what is so amazing about the truth of our union with Christ. Everything we need is found in him. So that's the path Paul is going to take us on today as he answers this question about being under the law versus under grace is that we have a new master and it's Jesus Christ and that's why we can't go on sinning. So first he's going to start with the problem of being enslaved to something. We'll call it, got to serve somebody. Verses 15 to 19. Now that wasn't some fancy Frenchman that I had to borrow that from. That was a philosopher from Minnesota. You might know him by the name of Bob Dylan. And after he came to Christ, or said he came to Christ in the late 70s, he wrote an album. And the, the title track on that album, or the first track on that album was, you got to serve somebody. You might be a heavyweight champion of the world, you might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. 
And he was right. He understood it, that we are all going to serve someone. You might have the idea that you can achieve some type of enlightenment or some type of freedom, but the only free person in all of creation is God. To not be bound by anything or anyone else but his own will and wishes. That's the theological doctrine of God's aseity. He exists independently from his creation. We are his creatures. He is the creator. He has no need from us. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does what? He pleases. You could think you're doing what you please, but you know what you're still driven by is to that which you are obeying. And that's Paul's answer to the question of, if we're not under the law but under grace, do we really have a master? Do we really need to obey? And his answer is, may it never be, verse 15. Absolutely not. God forbid would be the idiomatic expression we would use. Why can't you just do whatever you want to do after becoming a Christian? Because you have a new master. You don't just have a new life. You have a new Lord. In the in the Proof of that is in the way that we all show who our master is by way of what we do, what we're driven by. And so verse 16, he presents just a simple axiomatic reality. Do you not know that when you present yourselves willingly to someone as slaves for obedience, you're a slave to the one you obey? Just the principle in life that what you see somebody do gives evidence of who they follow. So I might know if I saw you going to work tomorrow, just by the uniform you put on, who your boss or master is by way of employment, who you're working for, who you're earning something from. If we were at one of those dog parks and I brought my old dog, he's my old dog, he's in a better place, he didn't die, he literally went to a new master and it's a much better place. There's no kids pulling his ears and he gets fed steak and he didn't get that with us. But if I saw Lucky and he has a new master and it's been, I don't know, seven or eight years and I called his name and then his real master now called his name, who would he go to? Probably not the guy that's like, that dude didn't feed me anything. I mean, I fed him. It wasn't the good stuff. He'd go to his new master. If I went to the dog park and you had a dog named Rocky and I said, Rocky, it wouldn't come to me. It would come to you. Why? It's responding to the call of its master. It, it, it's, it's obedient to the one that it serves. Now you're like, Adam, do that with cats. And that's where all analogies fall apart. But he's using an earthly analogy. That's what he gets, goes on to say in verse 19. Look, I'm using human terms to talk about this. Anthropomorphic language. Sin isn't really a person, but I'm personifying sin as if it is a master. Same with righteousness. Isn't a person... It's, it's personification. It's trying to get you to think like, why do I do the things that I do? I'm not really a free person. Even if I traced it back to what motivated me to do the things I did today, there's one of two people on the throne. You or God. And that's what really motivated you today. Now, as a Christian, your motive, your will has now been matched up with the will of your new master, Jesus Christ. So coming to church today, as nice as it would have been to sleep in, and your flesh back over here in Adam was like, just hit the snooze. You could catch him on the replay. There was something, and he said, no, I want to worship God with the people of God. It was an inclination in your heart to do it. 
You didn't put that there. That was part of you coming to Christ. You might have done that even before when you weren't a Christian. But there was something else driving you besides God to do it. It would have been the the God of self-righteousness or legalism that you felt I had to earn my way to God. And so I have to go to Mass. I have to receive the sacraments in order to stay on God's good side. Or if you would have, if I wouldn't have been saved at a young age, I was talking to the elders about this this morning, kind of thinking through what would we be doing if we weren't in Christ? I know it's the last week of the preseason, but I'd be at home getting ready for some preseason football. As lame as that sounds to you, Adam is God, and he'll do the things Adam wants to do according to the flesh because I would be serving that master. And that sin master really goes back to where it's located within me. So that's what he uses by way of analogy of slaves and masters in verse 16. The one whom you obey is the one who is your master. So how could you, answering the question in verse 15, go on serving your sin and not obeying the law if sin is no longer your master, but now you're obedient to righteousness? That's Paul's short answer to a short question. There's only two masters in the universe, sin and self, under the power of the prince of the air, Satan. So you could put sin and self and Satan all under the same heading over here, as we saw in Romans chapter 5, in Adam. Or over here, a slave to righteousness, obedience, he's going to use these words interchangeably, obedient to God. Why? Because you have a new master. You're in Christ. And the entire world only falls into one of those two categories of people. Not even the category of uh, belief in God. We don't evangelize, go out with the gospel and just try to find people that believe in a higher power and try to convert atheists to theists. That's not the point of evangelism. It's to tell a lost person, if you're not in Christ, you're going to perish forever. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. And so that's the whole world that we know, going back to Romans 5, has been divided into. And Paul is saying, you can't go on sinning like you used to be in the world because you have a new life, and you have a new life because you have a new Lord. And he explains that in verse 17. How did I get that new Lord? Did I do that for myself? Is it my own work? Look where the praise goes. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. How has this change suddenly happened in your life that you now want to be obedient from the heart? Well, you're no longer a slave to sin and obedient to your own whims and wills and wishes. You're now obedient to God from the heart by way of the form of teaching to which you were committed. That's another way to say the gospel that was preached to you. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the words of Christ, verse 17, is showing you, it's, it's locating where this change happened, and it wasn't because of your own efforts. But thanks be to God. Somebody that really understands justification by faith, understands that at any time and point we look at our lives and we see our own growth, like that phrase there in verse 16, obedience resulting in righteousness. Before we would start to puff ourselves up and say, you know, I'm just really having an obedient week. I know none of us talk like that in here, but maybe it crosses our mind. I'm really A-OK, you know, going strong. Well, Paul immediately turns to gratitude because he recognizes it was the grace of God 
that changed him. And so do we. So we give thanks to God. Somebody that recognizes the grace of God has gratitude to God that though I was a slave of sin, now I can obey from the heart. And that's the great exchange that Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 33 told us about. You will be given a new heart to obey from within. Not the pressures from the outside. Not chained from the outside to some form of righteousness of our own. Some legalism to earn our way to God. You will obey from the heart. Now what are you obeying? Look at that phrase. And this is key to understanding what's expected of us to grow. We became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. I want to take a few moments and expand on that because really that helps unlock this passage in a way that shows not just the grace of God and working and saving us, but what we were saved to. Not just that we were saved from sin, but we were saved to be obedient from the heart because there was a form of teaching to which we were committed. First, this word form is taken from the Greek world of blacksmithing, of somebody working with molds. So you could even put in the side column there in your notes, to a, a mold. And rather than put teaching, the mold of God's truth. That's what you became obedient from the heart to, the mold of God's truth in total. Now, you if you... You know, watch those shows on how people make forms and molds out of melting down uh, different metals. You have to have the original form hammered out, right? And it's got to be exact specifications to produce whatever it is you want, what statue you want, or what form you want. And once that thing is hammered out, that mold is made, then some type of raw material is heated up in some furnace and, and boiled down and dross is removed and it's poured into there. Now, it's not the stuff getting poured into that gets to tell the mold what it wants to be, is it? It takes the form of the mold that it was poured into. This is what happens to every Christian. We are obedient from the heart to the form of God's truth, the mold of God's truth that is fashioning us and forming us to the pattern of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel begins in you. Littlest ones in here, youngest ones in the faith. The first thing you're becoming obedient from the heart to, the form of teaching is the gospel. You don't understand probably even the word I used earlier, aseity. Most people in here probably don't. Let's be honest. But you don't need to know the aseity of God to become a Christian. Now, it's part of that mold. God put it all in there at the beginning. That's the wonder and the mystery of Christ Paul speaks about. But the first thing that you are submitted to as the one who's been melted down from your sinful state into this new creation and poured into the gospel mold, the first thing you believe is that you are a sinner and you need a savior. And you're committed to that. Now, that word for you were committed doesn't mean, oh, sign me up for that, I'm committed to it. It's a word in the passive tense that means you were entrusted, as in it was you that God entrusted into that word. It, it, it mastered you. You didn't master it. Does that make sense? Then it wasn't, oh, sign me up for that. Now, I know externally, most of us in here heard the gospel preached 
and said, I'll commit my life to that. But that's not the way he's talking about you were committed, where he's saying everybody open to the front of their Bibles where they wrote when they committed themselves to God. No, he's saying, when did God entrust you to this gospel teaching, this form, this mold that set your, part, set your life apart from sin to having a new life and a new Lord? You were entrusted to that. That's what changed you. It was done to you. You didn't sign yourself up for it. Even though you responded, you were saved by grace through faith. It was not of your own doing, lest anyone boast. See, if that meant I committed myself to that teaching, you have a little bit of a boast, don't you? Be saying, no, all sinners, when they recognize their abject sinfulness, their hopelessness and helplessness to make themselves righteous, I'm just using the imagery, are, are like raw material melted down and molded in the form of the gospel to the image of Jesus and now that's you, Christian. That, that metal cools from that form and it's flipped over and it's the new you recreated in the image of Christ. Romans 6.11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's what you should see when you flip yourselves and shake your identity in Christ out of that mold is I am alive to God in Christ, therefore not letting sin reign in my mortal body. That's where you get the power to change. It doesn't start with you. But it does come back to you to understand now you have a new master and you have the ability not to sin. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but you actually have the power now from within to say no to sin that you didn't have before. That's the new mold. Your old mold was just, it was just the pattern of your life. You did what you wanted to do. Occasionally, you might want to do a good thing. Maybe growing up a good kid in a church. And yeah, you would go just because there was some secondary benefit to your life. You know, you had friends there. Mom and dad made you go and you didn't want to get in an argument with them. But your motivation wasn't the glory of God. So you could even have been a church kid and still been living for your own glory, for yourself. But in Christ, you were recreated. So, oh, now I do want to offer my life as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1, for his glory. You are freed from sin, a slave to righteousness. And then verse 19 goes on to define what it is you're supposed to do as a result of that. Now I know that I am this new person, this new form, and I am a, a servant of righteousness. In other words, say that Christ is my master. What am I to do as a result of that? Look at verse 19. Just as I used to present my members, and we talk about members being a word for our our body parts, our eyes and ears, our hands and our feet, our minds, our tongue. Just as I used to use all of those body parts as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. Notice what it says, resulting in further lawlessness. So when we talk about the doctrine of we are depraved sinners from birth, sinners by nature, what that even shows us is that we don't all come out the worst possible or the worst you know, possible uh, person we could be. You can go from lawlessness to more lawlessness. I mean, that's by God's common grace most of the world today. Everybody doesn't turn into Adolf Hitler. Honestly. I mean, that, that could be the argument. Oh, if we're all so depraved, well, why aren't we all at the same place in our depravity all the time? It, you go from lawlessness to lawlessness. You start as what? 
a small thief. I'm going to steal that candy bar. You end up, I'm going to steal from my boss at work. You end up, I'm going to lie on my tax forms. You end up, well, in jail, white collar crime. You didn't start there. You can go from lawlessness to lawlessness in your depravity as a sinner. But thanks be to God that he saves us. And now look what happens on the reverse side. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, which is the opposite direction of I'm going from bad to worse. In all reality, I'm going from sin to more sin as my life goes on. Now he reverses it and says, your sanctification being a slave to righteousness as you go on from righteousness to righteousness. And you do. And that's how we grow as believers. Now, here's the thing you have to notice there. You are commanded to present your members as a slave to righteousness, meaning this is where your growth in Christ does involve you. Your salvation didn't. God saved you by grace, through faith in Christ. You didn't contribute to Christ's righteous works that he lived a perfect life and went to the cross in your behalf. But you do contribute to your growth in Christ's likeness. I don't know what the percentage is, I was at a weigh-in on Saturday for my kids' peewee football teams, and this is real serious stuff. You had to be there at a certain time for your team, and only coaches could go in. And the directors of this peewee football league, you know, making sure nobody's on any PEDs or anything like that. It's real, real intense here. And I'm standing waiting to send the team in. They have to be in alphabetical order according to the roster. It's ridiculous. So we're waiting around. And uh, this one kid on my team pipes up to the rest of the guys because they're getting to know each other. You know, guys, I won us the championship last year. They're all new guys, so they don't know. He played in a different league. And um, he said, it's because of me my team won the championship. I said, really? It's because of you. In front of his teammates. Yeah, I scored the winning touchdown. I said, really? I said, hey, guys, check this out. This guy scored the winning touchdown, won the whole championship by himself. He played by himself. There was nobody else out on the field. I said, were there 10 other guys with you maybe? Yeah. Do you think they might have blocked? And that's how you scored? Yeah. And I just used it as a principle to teach them right there. Guys, this is a team game. There's only going to be one guy that can run the ball into the end zone. There's 10 other guys that are going to make the hole for you to get there. Back to our sanctification. I don't think it's a 50-50 deal. Half of, you know, God's working in on my will and to work. It's maybe like a, a 10 to 1 deal. You know, I get the ball and get to cross the goal line. Who did all the work in front of me for it? And what was I called to do? What, what was my role? What's well, right in front of you in verse 19. You're literally commanded to do this to grow in sanctification. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin. That's 100% your responsibility. Now, in the greater scheme of things, of you growing as a Christian, you're just given the ball and expected not to fumble it. And we can fumble it. But it's, it's God working in on your will. He's, he's leading the way. This is why we can come out of these sermons encouraged. I can stop sinning. I can change. Because you have God working with you. 
And the things he's commanding us to do, he gives us the power to do it because we were freed from sin, verse 18, and we became a slave to righteousness. Verse 17 holds the key to that, though. That we, we're not just kind of out there exploring our freedom, trying to figure out what it is we're to do. We were committed. We were formed by a teaching, by a gospel teaching that has a creed that results in a certain character. There's a connectedness. We don't divorce the idea of becoming more like Christ from the commands of Christ and the words of Christ. What's Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, 17? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We actually grow, as verse 17 says, or John 17, 17 says, by the work of the word in us. We are conformed to a teaching. And that comes, that same creed, that same doctrine that we believed in for our salvation guides our sanctification. So we don't leave the Bible behind, Paul is saying here. We never outgrow the word of God. We grow by way of the Spirit's work in the Word of God as we sit under it, as we study it. One of the reasons we are gung-ho about offering classes here this fall in particular, a men's Bible study in 1 Timothy, fellas, a women's Bible study in Titus 2, biblical counseling classes going to kick off in September. Not so we could just be some puffed-up Christians who know a lot, who have mastered the text. It's quite the reverse. The end to which we want to study and master the text is that we would be mastered by it. That's sanctification. That's what he's saying here. That's the, that's the whole image of the form. It's you've been mastered by it. You're not the master of it. You need to know in order to grow. But that growth comes as you would learn more and understand more of who you are and who God is, and it overwhelms you. It, 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 it immerses you in that sanctifying work from the Spirit that as you're learning who God is and who you are, you become more like Christ. That's why we want to put these things in front of you. Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints means teaching, studying, meditating on the Word for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's why we put all this stuff out. Because that cause leads to an effect. The body of Christ is built up. It's strong. It can stand the tests of time. Slaves of righteousness resulting in our sanctification. We do have to serve somebody, and we can serve somebody. We can serve God. And in serving God, our freedom is not now to do whatever we want to do. That's a misunderstanding of what freedom is. What Paul is saying is your freedom now is to freely obey God from the heart. God is your new master. Christ is your Lord. Spirit is your guide. You have the whole Trinity working on your behalf to what? Restore what was lost in the garden, if you want to think of it that way. What is God trying to do as you grow in Christ? He's, he's restoring his Imago Dei, the image of God in you, that which was meant to be from the beginning, that you would be a reflector, a mirror of the holiness of God. His character would be seen in your life. That's, that's what sanctification is, being conformed again to the character of God, that you look like him by the way that you love by the way that you live, by the way that you t talk and walk, all of it. Uh, that's what sanctification is. 
It's, it's bringing you back to the garden as a child of God, transformed back to the character of your father. And that's the story of all of our redemption, and that's where Paul ends in this section. He, he highlights that this, this change is true of every person that's been redeemed. This is our redemption song. Verse 20, as he brings this chapter to a conclusion, for when you were slaves of sin, you needed redeemed. You, didn't need to re- you needed redeemed, verse 20, not just because you were a slave to do what sin wanted you to do. You weren't free to do what righteousness would want you to do. The image of this, an example, could come in uh, Exodus. If you want a, a biblical picture of this, that Exodus 3, God calls Moses, gives him a mission, verse 10, Exodus 3, come now and I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people out of Egypt. Here's the problem. Pharaoh is their master and he does not want to let them go. Exodus 5.1, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. What's this a picture of? When they were slaves to Pharaoh, when they were bound to follow what Pharaoh said, not only did they have to make the bricks faster and with less straw, they weren't free to go and worship God as they were supposed to. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 20. Sin makes you a slave to its will and wishes as well as prohibits you from being free to actually live a righteous life. And so Paul is continuing to try to show how glorious redemption is. You weren't recreated to stay as a slave to sin. Now you're free. Free to what? Obey righteousness. Verse 21, he, he recalls to their, to their mind, if you're thinking about going back, if, if it was better for you, you know, maybe that crossed uh, Paul's mind to say, maybe this question comes about, can we go on sinning because of grace, that somebody might be um, romanticizing their old life. Oh, it was better when I didn't have to follow those burdensome commands of the Bible. He says, really, I want you to ask you a question, verse 21. When you think about your life before, what benefit did you get out of those things of which you're now ashamed? Can you ask yourself that question right now? Quiet of your heart. And you think, I do this time to time. Where would I be right now on a Sunday if not for Christ? Probably don't have to think much further than the sin you struggle with. That if you had the ability to pursue it with all your desire if God hadn't changed your heart to become obedient from the heart. Now, for some of us, you would say, I'd probably be in a church, but I would be performing. I would be going through some rituals. I would be trying to, to, to show God that I really am a good person. And so my Sunday attendance would have to be impeccable and I'd have to volunteer for every single thing. And I would just be in the cycle of constantly trying to impress people that I'm a really good person. And then at my pride, I would really love for them to tell me that. Or you'd say, no, Adam, I'd I'd be getting ready for the preseason football games today. And as lame as that sounds because it's preseason football, that's probably what I would be doing. Because that's the stuff that already crosses my mind to do. (laughs) Like, I don't have to imagine this too much. I'd be living for me. 
I'd be wanting to sleep in, make waffles, kick my feet up. What benefit did you derive from the things of which you're now ashamed? Because the worst part of that question is what comes next. The outcome of that is death. You know, as you go from lawlessness to lawlessness, back in verse 19, the outcome's death. That you would just stay dead in your sins and trespasses and go to hell that way. But, verse 22, now you've been freed from sin. It's penalty. You're no longer guilty and no longer sentenced to eternal separation from God. But you're freed from sin and you're enslaved to God. You can actually live for God now. And here's your benefit. You didn't get any benefit from those things you used to do in your sin. Here's your benefit, verse 22. It results in your sanctification and the outcome eternal life. The things you now do, and you can see this in your life, can't you? That the way in which you grow in Christ-likeness, back in verse 19, when you present your body to be used for, for God's good purposes, think of the benefits you get from that. Think of the way in, in which your life is more fulfilled now, using your life for the glory of God and the good of others. Fulfilling the, the law, which is simply put in the love of what? Love of God and love of neighbor. How your life has changed. How it's better because of that. That's the temporary benefit in your sanctification. And then the outcome is eternal life. Now, one of the questions we might ask, you know, Adam, when you use that illustration of saying we can go from bad to worse, uh, how come it seems like some of us grow at different paces? You know, why is it more evident in some lives more than others? There's a lot of ways to think about that. But back to what I said before, you know, when it comes to making yourself available, yielding yourself to the way in which God could work through the local church to, to put you around people to help build you up. You know, that principle we learned way back in Mark 4, 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Take care how you listen. By your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you. And more will be given. You know, maybe that answer that question, why, do, why am I not growing at the same pace that I thought I would be or someone else is? Well, have, are, you, are you measuring out the maximum amount you can to say, whatever, whatever I can get out of the word of God, I'm going to take up. That, that might be one answer to it. Another one is, hey, indwelling sin is still trying to slow us down. It's, it's still waging war against us. And discouragement can keep us from where we want to be. I'm sure over the last few weeks of examining our hearts and thinking about, hey, I can actually stop sinning. And then I go back to my... Monday to Saturday last week, and I sinned again? Is it all for naught? Well, let me ask you something when you think about your obedience to the Lord. If you're in Christ today, do you find yourself sinning less? Probably if you had to chart it out, you are. But simultaneously, do you find yourself feeling worse about it? If you're growing in Christ, you probably do. And so maybe you're... You know, it all just rushes together in your mind when you go home today and you, you, you lose your cool and you fail or sometime in this week when you fall back into sin and you choose not to obey. You'll feel that in a way you didn't earlier in your life. And if there was some way on some XY chart of, you know, holiness on the vertical axis and time, like maybe you are growing in sanctification and holiness. You don't realize it because you're sinning less and, but yet you just are like, ah, oh, I did it again. It's a good sign. 
that you actually have a conviction over it. Whereas earlier in your life you didn't or some, you know, the Spirit's prompting you to feel convicted and maybe he even needed to prompt somebody else in your life to help you with that prompting. And now it maybe comes a little more natural. But when you sin that you say, yeah, I, I shouldn't have done that, Lord. And thank you that I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ first and foremost, going back to him. Thankful that he's growing you in the gospel, but then going back to that person you might have wronged. Whereas before, there was some silence for a while, there was some bitterness, there was some, I'm gonna build a wall, and now you're going, and I need to go back to that person and make it right. That's God's work in your life. Probably feel really bad having to do it, and that's God's work in your life. The worst place to be is to feel none of it. To have become so callous and hardened to sin as a believer that you don't feel it. And the starting point for that would be to go back to the gospel. What did God do for you in Christ Jesus? While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. This is for the believer. It's going back to the truth of God loves you in Christ. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life? I mean, that's, that's what jumpstarts it. What will never jumpstart your calloused heart as a Christian when you're stuck in your sin is just trying to beat yourself harder with obedience. I, I have no. Go back to the gospel. Be motivated by the grace of God. Go back to him confessing, I am still so in need of your grace. Help me. Help me. Now, if you find yourself completely indifferent and unfazed by any of this, that may be a sign that you're not in Christ. And so guess what the solution to that is today? You need to go to the gospel and and ask God to to break your heart, hard heart. Like I talked about earlier, that that he has to melt that sin down in you. That that pride, that self-reliance, that self-righteousness and completely melt it down for you to see you absolutely need him to save you and change you. And when you are, you can live a life now of obedience to him. And that life of obedience will bear fruit. I was talking about Bob Dylan earlier in his song, You All Gotta Serve Somebody. And, um, you know, it got me listening to some of his music this week and reading a little bit more about him. And, And one of the interesting things, there's a, biography somebody wrote about his life. 300 pages trying to figure out his faith. And it made me think. And it's not about me trying to figure out by way of reading that book. Was Bob Dylan still alive? Is Bob Dylan really a Christian? That's not the point. Doesn't answer to me. Doesn't answer to anyone other than God. But it made me wonder... Should it take 300 pages for somebody to figure out whether or not you're a Christian? If somebody had to write a book about my life today, should it take more than a page? More than Ephesians 2, 1 to 10? I was, but God, I am. That's clear and compelling evidence the, the change, the transformation that Christ brings in your life. What does it say about 
how God designed the gospel and its power to transform us that if we claim to be changed by it, it would take 300 pages to describe. How about a different example? There was another man who underwent a dramatic conversion and wrote songs about it, and his name was John Newton. Born in London in 1725, he was a blaspheming slave trader turned grace-filled pastor and hymn writer. We sing his hymn, Amazing Grace. But it wasn't just like Bob Dylan, some songs he wrote that would have been evidence of the fruit of conversion. It was the life he lived because he went from being a slave trader to what? Slave abolitionist, working with William Wilberforce to bring an end to the British slave trade. And it happened nine months before he died. This is what he said near the end of his life. This is what should be said of all of us. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. It's what it comes down to. Knowledge of God, I'm a great sinner. Knowledge of self, he's a great Savior. And you just put those two things together. There's the explanation for your life. <laughs> it's never more complicated than that. He wrote, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for its power to transform and change because that is the story of all of us. That we are great sinners in Christ. You are the great Savior. And so we say this morning from our hearts, thanks be to God. That we have been freed from sin and become slaves to righteousness because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. We've been declared righteous in Him and the gospel and you make us righteous in him. And I pray for our hearts to be inclined from the inside, for our will and our desire to obey, to go from righteousness to greater righteousness, not for us, but for you to get the glory. Because that's where it all should go. Thank you for showing us that so clearly in your word today, Father. Thank you for the way it builds and strengthens our hearts. Pray this in Christ's name.